You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Welcome back to the Batuta Advocate radio show, recording live in the Diamantina Shire. You've got myself, editor Clancy Overall, and of course, uh, this week I'm joined by Wendell Hussey, the eternal cadet turned lifestyle editor, sometimes sports editor. How you been, mate? Yeah, I've been good. Thanks, Clancy. Getting back into it for the, the year, as you said. Eternal cadet. Uh, look, you know, one day one day I'll work my way up. But, one day uh, you'll get on one of the big jobs. And yeah. This might be the day, actually. You know, we've got... Um, an icon of Australian an, music. Australian music icon. But I think for all intents and purposes, we're going to say a Queensland icon because when we're talking about music, Queensland often suffers a bit of a brain drain south. And um, today's, I, I wouldn't say that today's guest would have been a part of that because Robert Forster from the go-betweens bypassed those greedy southern cities of Melbourne and Sydney and, um, you know, went on tour around the world straight from Brisbane. But he never sold out. Never sold out. Always stayed true. And as we speak to you now, back home in Brisbane, Robert? Yes, I am. I am in um, suburban Brisbane and uh, very happy. And, yeah, it's not too hot today. It's been a magic summer. Yeah. Um, very mild. And uh, the last week it's it's picked up and sort of reminded reminded us of how tough it can be. But um, today is a little bit better and, yeah, lovely to be talking to you guys. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, what has informed your career. Firstly, geographically, uh, we're talking about Queensland. You, you know you would have seen some hot summers. And um, I feel like the climate, particularly when – the go-betweens first started in form, politically and, uh, you know, uh, weather patterns. Everyone around Queensland can kind of... Um, isolation was a big factor back then too, I imagine, you know, actually being, you know, your own little uh, kingdom up there in Queensland. But what yes. was it? Where, where did you come from before Brisbane? Were you always born and bred Brisbane? Yes, yeah. I was born... Um, the first five years of my life were in... Uh, lived around Clayfield and Hendra, which is where my, my family were living, like extended family, which is more like oldie-worldie, nice suburbs of Brisbane. And then my parents sort of went out to one of the new suburbs. And like, so, you know, like, you know, building a house on a like an estate type thing yeah. in the very early 60s. And basically I'm in the same suburb and it's where I grew up. So, so all of that sort of upbringing and the last 20 years of my life, have been quite static. It's between about 1980 and 2000, year 2002 that I was sort of moving around a lot more. Now, I'm going to surprise you here because while you are one of our great musicians, there's also our hidden talents, and I've done a bit of research. I'm going to read you, read you a little something that came from a school newsletter many All moons right. ago. Robert Forster is another bowler of great promise. He claimed three wickets, but this was due more to a lack of opportunity than anything else. His perseverance and ability should be duly rewarded in the future in spite of the inhibiting factors which confront all spin bowlers in the competitive style of the schoolboy one-day matches. Where'd you get that from? The archives of your high school. All right, yep, yep. <laughs> was that ever a thing? Was that ever on the cards? Uh, well, you, I mean, the, the world of spin bowling can be in Australia can be divided into two halves. Mm-hmm. 
There's before Shane Warne and there's after Shane. Warne. <laughs> I was, to, I was so, wondering if that was the if that was the before and after yeah, moment. That's that's the subtext of what you're reading there. <laughs> it's it's basically you know back in the 70s when I was playing at school and then I played some grade cricket in Brisbane for a, a couple of years. You know, like the spinner would be brought on when you know two batsmen were completely entrenched, hitting the quick bowlers all over the park. And then the spinner would come on, you know, at three for 200. Do you know what I mean? And you're expected to. But then Warren came and, and changed everything. And, and now when I walk around the suburbs and I see kids playing in the parks, everyone's bowling leg spin. Yeah. You know, like you see a complete mix-up. That did not happen back in the 70s. Yeah. You know, like being a spinner was a really hard job. And that's what I sort of... I think that cut a lot of careers short, you know, mm. like I think spinners just gave up, really. Mm. Um, and then came the revolution, and now it's a whole it's a whole different game. And, and it's great to walk around and see spinners, you know, just playing suburban cricket. And, of course, that goes all the way through now to international cricket, you know. So, you know, Shane Warne, he changed cricket, you know, like that's no exaggeration. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't like it when we do this, but we are drawing a metaphor between sport and, and art uh, right now. And, um, you know, back in the era, you're telling us you were a spin bowler, pre-Shane, in the era of Dennis and Lily. Yes. That- 20, 20 BSW before Shane Warne. Yeah, 20, 20 BSW, BSKW. And so there is a metaphor into your music as well at the time because Brisbane had a sound and you guys were doing something different. Even though your sound is obviously synonymous with your home and there's now a bridge named after you all, tell us what that was like. What was the climate like when you guys first started packing up the car, bumping in, bumping out? Um, when we started to do that, it was um, – well, punk rock came along and changed a lot. And this would be the same for bands like the Triffids in Western Australia mm-hmm. or bands in Sydney and Melbourne to an extent. Basically, before that – you had to have about three hours of, of cover versions, you know, like you, you had to be able to play, you know, Led Zeppelin 4. So that weeded out a lot of people. So bands were like very proficient at playing cover versions. Yeah. And suddenly punk came along. And if you had something to say, and if you could write some songs that were saying something, no matter what, the door was suddenly open. And, and that's when the go-betweens came in. That's when a lot of bands came in around very 1978. And the, the Brisbane scene, like the punk scene, the post-punk scene in Brisbane, in you know, from 1978 on, you know, like the um, next couple of years, was very vibrant, was very good. And so there was a, everyone was very supportive of each other. And so there, there was just a change from three-hour cover version bands to 20-minute bands. Mm-hmm. And that's when, when the go-betweens came in. Was there a lot of songs and songs written about smoking bongs back then? Because that feels like a lot no, of the Brisbane no, punk now. No. no. Brisbane was, well, if you did, you'd have the Queensland Police Force, you know, like yeah. at your door um, <laughs> the next day. Because the, because of the police state, you know, mm-hmm. and the corruption of the Queensland Jockey Peterson government, they sort of, you know, like were, were very much against the punk scene and were, you know, very visible and it was a, a very, very, you know, like no, no one was writing about that because a lot of people were writing political stuff, you know, like those political punk bands. Yep. And really the police were so omnipresent 
that you wouldn't want to ride it. Like it, it, it was a very, it's hard to get your head around what it was like. Mm. Everyone that didn't have a straight job and out in the suburbs, like there was a sense of paranoia yeah. in the streets, especially with any subcultural or any artistic endeavor that was taking place in Brisbane. People were freaked out by the cops who could really just turn up and do anything they wanted. Well, I, um, you know, we've met Kev Carmody over the years, and Kev says there was a time where he didn't even keep a phone in the house. I, I want to kind of ask you about that. We interviewed a band the other day, actually, called Speed. as a hardcore band. The interview will be coming out in the next few weeks. They're a hardcore band from Sydney. They yeah. said the appeal to them as a young Asian kid starting a band like that was the subculture they found themselves in. They're at these gigs, and they felt that danger that you get in a mosh pit of a hardcore yeah. show. And I know the hip hop is a similar thing. Going to these shows and it's gangster and it's this and that. And people, there's an, there's an appeal in the danger. Was there a sense of danger in those rooms of those political and, and just punk shows in Brisbane at the time? Was there a feeling that the cops could bust down the door at any minute? Yeah, there definitely was. And it happened at shows where I were at, but also from the audience. Like the Brisbane scene had definitely, in the very early, like 1978, there was definitely a. Uh, a more uh, a violent edge to it, yep. which had basically come from the violent edge that was in, you know, around the sort of Sex Pistols yep. in London. That was in Brisbane too. Like there was a lot of um, threat, um, but but I never felt it. I mean, obviously, yep. you know, like from other bands, but there was like a very much a working class Brisbane contingent that were in punk that were. You know, like it was always a sense of menace and a sense of uh, aggression. We never had any problems and um, it never really flared up, but it wasn't for show. You know, like there was punk bands and people in punk bands that it was very real to them and that sense of menace and suppressed violence was very much there. But, you know, like that was, you know, like amidst, you know, like almost friends at shows completely separated from what the police could do and their intentions. It was almost like it came with the scene and the music, just that sort of sense of violence. It was probably, you know, the same in Sydney to an extent or anywhere in, in that 1977-78 time. And the cops were obviously a, a whole other thing, and that's what you really had to worry about. How did you feel with those kind of bands and those kind of audiences as your contemporaries. I'm sure you're on a lot of lineups and, and you know, you guys weren't really singing about kicking heads in. No, no. But they sort of um, respected what we were doing and they could see that we were real in, in, in how we were. And it all sort of worked out. It freaked me out to an extent because I, I'd never really been around, you know, like I, I wasn't a seasoned rock show goer before I – rock gig because there were, you know I didn't want to go and see cover version bands so much so it was sort of an initiation to me to be at gigs anyway when the go-between started but we with the other bands I mean they probably thought that we were we were pretentious you know like university arty people mm -hmm. but they could see that we were real and would we were who we are which I think counted for something so the, you're saying the kind of education, I mean, very, uh, you know, you'd met at university, which is kind yeah, of yeah. a different story for a lot of people, but they could see that it wasn't from a position of privilege. It was from a position of passion. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we we were our music was very simple, mm. you know, like very straightforward. You know, like it it sort of came from the first Ramones album and the first Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers album. You know, like we we had sort of our first couple of years were quite, although we weren't playing quick sixty pop music. Our music was quite garage. Mm. You know, like we liked the Velvet Underground a lot, and so a lot of the harder edge punk bands really love the velvets as well so we had things in common you know like it wasn't like it was some sort of prog band i mean we wouldn't be there anyway but there was a, a musical appreciation and an understanding and also the other thing was there was like three or four hundred people in the scene so everyone had to sort of make room for each other anyway yeah. you know like there couldn't be civil war or something like that because what's the point you know like we had so much around us against us and, you know, the cultural climate in, in Brisbane in the late 70s, I think everyone just sort of realised that we're all in this together. A mutual respect. Yeah, yeah, totally. Now, you guys uh, and yourself, you had a huge audience, widespread, all around Australia, all around the world as well, America, Europe, all that sort of stuff. But it never seemed like commercial success was something that you guys were after. That wasn't the main goal and the main aim. Was that something that you guys actively spoke about or was it just the commitment to the art that you mentioned that was you guys were trying to make music and you wanted to make the music you wanted and it kind of didn't matter if it was a commercial success or not? It was a struggle, especially in the 80s, because there, was, there were people could see commercial aspects in our music. And we love pop music as well. So it was a bit confusing for record companies in the industry. It was like, well, are you a pop band or are you not a pop band? You know, like, are you an underground band or are you a mainstream band? That was sort of un unclear. There was two singer-songwriters in the band, you know. Who's the lead singer? Who's who's the, mm. the thing that we can focus everything on? So we sort of presented a number of problems to the, the music industry in, in a way. And so... These sort of pressures came on us, but overall, you know, like I thought, and this is an old-fashioned definition, but I always thought of us as more of an album band. And an album was a place where you could do a lot more than what you wanted to be as opposed to, you know, just trying to sort of make one hit single after another. And, like, we were, we were very dedicated to making great albums. You know, there's, there's mm. no two ways. But in the 80s, that was hard. There was a lot of commercial pressure as well. Yeah, fair. And I um, heard there might have been something to do with a, a red dress in terms of commercial opportunities over in America. Yeah, no, the myth starts to come in. There's no red dress. So there was a dress. I was wearing a dress at, at certain shows. And I did in LA, which, which didn't go down well with um, the American record company. But, you know, and at the time, that was just part of the whole you know, we're a very interesting band and mm. we're a very different band. And that was just one thing of, you know, not not that this is directly, you know, connected to the dress, but like we had there were, in the Go Twins, there was two women in the band. Yeah. And so we'd, we'd play festivals and that we'd be on with, you know, 40 other bands where it was all guys. Yeah. And like suddenly we're there with not, you know, with two women in our, you know, like we looked different and we presented different anyway. You know, and the dress included. It, it was the whole package of of what we threw up there and, and were presenting in the late 80s. 30 years ahead of Harry Styles, mate. Yeah. He got a front page know, on Vogue for that. Look, I know that. I know. Well, it was only about five years, ten, oh, 
you know, Kurt Cobain was doing it. Uh, Evan Dando, <laughs> there, there was a rush on it also in the uh, early mid nineties as well. Blazer oh, Trail for Shane Warne, Harry Styles. Well, I'm sure they were doing it Brisbane Broncos Mad Mondays as well. So I don't know. I, look, I was, I, it's not often that that I'm ahead of my time, but but that's probably <laughs> an example. So when did you realise that you tapped into something? You can talk about commercial success, but you can also talk about a level of, uh, I guess, cultural capital that re- results in you having a major form of, you know, Queensland infrastructure named after you, you know? That speaks volumes. And I the go-between bridge, everyone knows it, everyone knows what it's yes. named after. Yes, yes, yes. Um, w- when did you realise that you were going to be one of those bands? I mean, maybe the bridge wasn't on the horizon as far as you could see. No, but- no, no, it wasn't. It, it, it was never on the horizon, but it just uh, appeared. But I, uh, it's a gradual process mm-hmm. and so gradual that you almost don't even notice it happening, but it is happening. And uh, so I don't know. It's it's a gradual realization. That was obviously a big moment, but there aren't all that many moments like that where you suddenly realize the stature of your band is growing or changing. Yeah, but it just happened over time. There wasn't one gig where you were like, whoa, okay. No. Oh, yeah, but that didn't even be going back further. I can remember we played Glastonbury in like 1986 like a big festival in in the countryside in England. And like suddenly we were playing to about 10,000 people there (laughs) and we were really reaching them. And so that was a moment where we'd been a club band and suddenly you're on a festival with 10,000, 15,000 people for you and they're they're not walking away. So that was a moment where it's like, oh, this could go further. We could, there was opportunities there that, the day before you didn't see and then suddenly it becomes apparent there was a thing particularly um it's still around today but particularly when you were uh you know in your 20s was very popular for you know middle class working class kids in brisbane to relocate and visit visit london uh, more so than um you know any other cities you know there was even a a movie made about it all my friends are leaving brisbane i remember that one well what was it like for you guys as part of the kangaroo court, the, the you know, the, the London push? How did that feel? And was it very much like, you know, the, the, the authors that came before you? Were you transplants in another city? Good question. To an extent, yes, because it's always very hard to break into. Yeah. The English in London is very clicky. You know, like mm-hmm. you haven't gone to – it doesn't matter, you know, like you, you mightn't have gone to Eton mm-hmm. and, oh, that keeps me out of the Eton crowd. But it also, you know, like if – it's you know you haven't gone to the local high schools you haven't yeah. gone to you haven't played in the local sports clubs yeah. you haven't got any relatives there you know like that really cuts you off and throws you into you know like we we were we were living in areas and we were like meeting um you know like a lot of irish people and scottish people and that's the sort of crowd that we're also moving amidst were other people that had come to london and were living you know in squats and in you know, like tower blocks and stuff like that, were people that had come to the the cities from, you know, Dublin or Glasgow. And so we we were like, well, we're the Brisbane of that or there's a Sydney thing of that, you know. But obviously, you know, like we were mixing with Australians, but also just through the meeting other bands, we were meeting English people 
but they're in the music business or yeah. something like that. There, there was no sort of, there's very little social mobility mm. in London. It's really hard to get out of the gutter. And so you, you realize that fairly quickly and you just get on, you know, and do what you've got to do. I read in the Good Weekend article about, hey. you know, the share houses and, and the life you were living over there. A few names come to mind. Nick Cave being one of them. With people like that, the kind of your careers kind of follow a similar trajectory or you're at least adjacent to each other throughout your career from that point. Is there a feeling when you meet someone like Nick Cave in your 20s, was there a feeling then that Nick Cave's going to be Nick Cave as we know him today? Did you ever get those feelings or was there one of a million of them? No. With him, he was living such a dangerous life. Yeah. And we're all living, you know, like dangerous lives, but but him in particular and, you know, some people that no one was really looking much beyond the next week or two and trying to find money to get by. I was never thinking anyone that that I was around was really thinking much beyond that. It was very immediate in London because it was driven by lack of money. So everyone was just like on that poverty level. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, like particularly with Nick, to be truthful, I didn't know if he was going to make 30, you know, so... I couldn't really think of him any way beyond that. I mean, he was charismatic and talented, but then so was, you know, like Roland Howard, Mick Harvey, David McComb, you know, like Grant. There was a lot of people I knew that were very talented and writing great songs. And I never thought of David McComb becoming a rock star or Grant becoming a rock star or or Nick or Roland. We, we were too much in the, the trenches to really be thinking about that. And there was a lot of alcohol and drugs around. So who knew who was going to have a long life? Yeah. Can I ask, when you were down in the trenches there in your 20s and maybe 30s, your dad was a fitter and turner. Your mum was a PE teacher, I believe. How were they going when you were down in the trenches there? Were they were they worried? Were they pushing back? Were they asking things? Or did they were let they, you just have fun? Were they aware? <laughs> no, yeah, no, they, I think they were. They never said anything. I think they were worried, definitely mm-hmm. worried. First of all, they, they were relieved because, you know, like I was sort of – I was at university, but I was failing and just all over the shop. And suddenly they could see that music saved me, you know, like working with Grant – and suddenly, you know, our first single comes up and I'm in the press, you know, I'm in the Courier Mail. And that meant something. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And so there's there's some respectability and they can see that I'm doing something. But that's not in 78. But as the 80s go, you know, they'd see me on tour. You know, we'd come back from England and tour and then I'd spend a, a week or two with, with mum and dad. And they could see I was getting thinner and that I was, you know, like looking weirder every time I'd come back. Mm-hmm. They must have been worried. And then I just sort of, you know, mum would wash my clothes. I'd eat food and sleep for a, a week. And then I'd just go back off, you know, mm-hmm. like it'd be, I'm back to going back to London or I'm going back on this tour. So they'd sort of bandage me and get mm-hmm. me all up. You know, so and they're so be- happy to just have you home that they're not Yeah, gonna- they're very happy to see, see me home. So I think that they, through the 80s, they could see that, um, yeah, the career of the go-betweens was, was going on. But, you know, I was still the same person. But, you know, like especially when you're home, you know, like any pretenses fall away. But they must have seen I was getting thinner and weirder. And then, so, you know, and so I was aware of of that, of course. And, um, yeah, it was unfortunate. But, you know, like that's just 
what I was going through. And, um, yeah, fortunately, it, it sort of changed. And, you know, like life became a little bit more stable for me and for them when I was in my early 30s. Now, you, your kids are playing music too. Yeah. How do you engage with this lifestyle that they've, um, you know, when you, when you look at it as something for them? There's a big chance that even, uh, you know, any musician today probably wouldn't be going as hard as, you know, I'd say a, a pioneers and stalwarts of rock music in Australia and Queensland. But is that that's also something you now have to think about as, um, you know, do as I say, don't as I did. Yeah, yep, yep. Well, I think I think my children, you know, like know my past. Mm-hmm. And so, so they can see, you know, I had to pay a, a price, you know, like for my drug taking, you know, like I, I was diagnosed with hepatitis C. They saw me go through, you know, like two years of hell in terms of uh, treatment for that. And I've talked about it with them, you know, like the whole shebang. And so I think that they can see what, what what I've been through and can make choices with that. And as I say, I've spoken, you know, like with them. And I, th- I think all you can do is really bring up your children as best you can mm. and um, be open with them. And they go out into the world and you just hope that they take certain values, certain ideas, certain experiences, certain ideas with them as they confront all this sort of stuff. Yeah, I'll be, I'm, I've been listening to Goon Sacks, actually, your son's band. Um I, I kind of want to talk now more about this family affair. You're not exactly the Von Traps, but you've all been working together on this new, on this new album, uh, "The Candle and the Flame." Can you kind of tell us a little bit about all this? Um, yeah, it, it wasn't a planned album. Mm-hmm. That's the, the main thing that I have to um, say to you. It was an album that came out of particular circumstances. My wife, Karen, um, was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, this was in July 2021, and so through her first periods of chemo and i i played music with with current we've, we've been married for 31 years at that time and so we've played music at home a lot and she's music's been something that we've done in the house just as a domestic pursuit since the time that we we met in the late 80s and so in this time of her diagnosis we we turned to music again and so we just started to play some songs at home late at night and we found that that was took us as, as music can into mm-hmm. another world yep. and, and the present day problems and what you're facing through the day can fall away very quickly and so we started playing some new songs that i'd written as just something to do at night to take us away from hospital visits yep. to doctors yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and so that grew into through a number of steps and stages into us recording sporadically some songs together with friends and family and making an album over about well six months, a day here in the studio, a day there, recorded mostly live, and that's how we made The Candle and the Flame. It's exciting. Like I know for a fact uh, you're doing this interview with us just because you're a big fan of Batuta Advocate and you felt like coming on. But you are um, in some capacity doing a bit of a press junket right now. How, how does it feel to be getting uh, all those muscles moving again, coming out of a pandemic especially? Well, no, that's a very good point. Um, you know, like the muscles are moving and there's a sense of excitement about doing this again, doing this. Um, it's completely different though because the, the record – is unlike anything I've done before. 
and so it's always exciting when you put out a new record but but this is like something else and yeah like for the last three years it feels like with COVID, with Karen's diagnosis, we've been in something of a, a tunnel and suddenly coming out. I'm enjoying it. So is Karen a great deal, like watching the reaction the record's getting and how people are responding to the two videos we've made and mm. how people are responding to the story. And, you know, doing the the big story with Lech Blaine, yep. who did an incredible job um, writing that story up and interviewing people. So there's a sense of excitement, and um, I am the busiest person in show business at the moment. <laughs> there's no one working harder. I've got to tell you guys that right now. <laughs> Try and find someone. But I'm, I'm happy that there's interest there, and I'm always happy to talk to the advocate. Oh, thanks, mate. And you're out of the tunnel and onto the motorway. You're off on tour as well in a couple of months? Five, five or six weeks. I'm doing a short, like in the UK and Ireland and um, Germany and one show in Vienna, like a, a really packed three weeks because I can't be away too long. Yep. And I'm doing a, like a tour over there and then, and then playing in Australia all over in um, May. You as a musician and as a band member, your band always had the ability to you know, for, for whoever listened to it, would feel like they were hearing a new band for the first time. And I said this, it's, there's a few bands that can do that. Um, right. You know, you, your band, you reunited in the early 2000s, somewhat 30, almost 30 years after you, you'd formed. And that wasn't uh, a reunion based on like a charity show. That was right. back in to make music that was, you know, a sound of now and a sound of you guys at the time. And, and you're feeling that right now, that this is the music that you make at this time in your life and, and, you know, in somewhat of a discography, this is going to, you know, people would be able to know when this came? Yes, I think they would. I think um, the last three albums that I've made have a continuity and a part of one thing, although this one sounds different. The songs are based on how I've been writing and working over the last 10 years. I think, you know, through a career, you know, like a couple of years or, or even 10 years, you can you can tell that's one period. And I know as a writer, suddenly I can write one or two songs and I go, oh, this is the something, this is the start of something new. This is, I've made some breakthroughs here that I didn't even see. And suddenly you're writing material that is like, oh, this is the next stage. And then, you know, like I'm also like, when I started to write for the monthly and I started like, I suddenly got hired as a music uh, journalist who was like, Oh, this is something new that's that's come along, and I guess if if you have um, a career as, or you're doing it over decades, then these new developments, these periods that you move from one to the other, will become apparent. And I'm glad that I keep on moving on. You know, you, you've got to keep nourishing yourself and be open to new ideas, and and while keeping believing in yourself. But things just mutate as well. Mm -hmm. I think that's what it is, mutation. So, you know, songs that I wrote in the late 70s have mutated into what I'm doing now, naturally, but also just being open to new ideas helps. Well, we're looking forward to it. And um, we're uh, very honoured to have you on today, as I said before, uh, an icon of Australian arts and Australian music, uh, one of Queensland's favourites. Finest. Queensland's finest. Queensland's <laughs> finest. I appreciate that. 
I just want to ask, just just before we go, as a you know, in your capacity as a music journalist and some somewhat of a observer of the young kids coming to the ranks now, is there anything you like, and is there anything that you're surprised that you're across, or something that you you know you listen to again? Oh, um, a variety. I haven't been listening to much music over the last couple of years because I've been mm. writing. But look, I like the chats. Yep. Do you know the chats? Yeah, good mm-hmm. sunshine guys, boys. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, like I just I like their cheeky charm. Mm-hmm. I think that you know they're in a uh, a genre of music that's been you know like well established, but they they bring something new to it, and I just like the idea of them being in a, a shed in sunshine coast three of them making music is is like a fantastic image to me you know like a romantic image to me and um i like that that's something i can relate to and um i like them i like aldous harding from new zealand she's a a great singer songwriter too yeah mate of mine's got her name tattooed on him he loves it that much Uh, wow another mate of mine has spring hill fair tattooed on him too and I was actually not aware because I uh, wasn't cutting around Brisbane at this time. But just, just before we go, what was the Spring Hill Fair like? Everyone talks about it like it was, you know, some sort of Notting Hill carnival. A little bit. Look, I think the, the Spring Hill Fair, you know, is fondly remembered because there was so little of that sort of thing happening. Mm-hmm. Now you, you can go to three Spring Hill Fairs every weekend. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone's doing it and has been doing it for a long time. I think that's why. I, it, it was good in its day. I only went once, I think, and um, I liked it. But I think the reason it was so unusual and so forward-looking to do a street festival in Brisbane in the 80s was, was revolutionary. Mm. But um, that was Grant's idea. Like, he, he just sort of came up with that an album title, and uh, we all liked it. And, you know, like, I'm glad we, we put that to you know, hometown thing like that to an album. It was good. It was really, really nice, you know. And Spring Hill's a, like a lovely, you know, um, area close to the city, very pretty, very nice. Mm. And so it was a good idea, a good idea ahead of its time. Well, it's 2023. There's a new Robert Forster album out now, and I'm, I'm making it official. I'm putting the call out here on this podcast today, Bring Back the Spring Hill Fair. I mean, we always have fun at the um, Caxton Seafood Beer and Rum Festival, but uh, right. I'd love to see the Spring Hill Fair to come back to coincide with this new album and this tour. Look, put that to the Brisbane City Council. That's <laughs> yeah, we'll put I the say. pressure on them. Thank you for joining us today, Robert. It's a hell of a yarn and um, a hell of a story, and we look forward to seeing the next chapter. The Candle and the Flame, out now. Okay, wonderful talking to you guys, and I always enjoy talking to the advocate. Thank you. We'll catch you again for the next album. Okay, I'll be there. Speak soon.